20. Dedication to the first volume of collected Tatler essays. The general purpose of this paper is to expose the false arts of life, to pull off the disguises of cunning, vanity, and affectation, and to recommend a general simplicity in our dress, our discourse, and our behavior. The success of this unheard of combination of news, gossip, and essay was instantaneous. Not a club or a coffee house in London could afford to be without it, and over its pages began the first general interest in contemporary English life as expressed in literature. Steele at first wrote the entire paper and signed his essays with the name of Isaac Bickerstaff, which had been made famous by Swift a few years before. Addison is said to have soon recognized one of his own remarks to Steele, and the secret of the authorship was out. From that time Addison was a regular contributor and occasionally other writers added essays on the new social life of England. Steele lost his position as gazetteer, and the Tatler was discontinued after less than two years' life, but not till it won an astonishing popularity and made ready the way for its successor. Two months later, on March 1, 1711, appeared the first number of The Spectator, in the new magazine Politics and News, as such, were ignored, it was a literary magazine, pure and simple and its entire contents consisted of a single light essay. It was considered a crazy venture at the time, but its instant success proved that men were eager for some literary expression of the new social ideals. The following whimsical letter to the editor may serve to indicate the part played by the spectator in the daily life of London, Mr. Spectator. Your paper is a part of my tea equipage, and my servant knows my humor so well that in calling for my breakfast this morning it being past my usual hour she answered, the spectator was not yet come in but the tea kettle boiled, and she expected it every moment, it is in the incomparable spectator papers that Addison shows himself most worthy to be remembered, he contributed the majority of its essays, and in its first number appears this description of the spectator, by which name Addison is now generally known, there is no place of general resort wherein I do not often make my appearance, sometimes I am seen thrusting my head into a round of politicians at Will's Coffee House and listening with great attention to the narratives that are made in those little circular audiences, sometimes I smoke a pipe at Child's, and, whilst I seem attentive to nothing but the postman, overhear the conversation of every table in the room, I appear on Sunday nights at Street James's, and sometimes join the little committee of politics in the inner room, as one who comes to hear and improve. My face is likewise very well known at the Grecian, the Cocoa Tree, and in the theatres both of Drury Lane and the Haymarket. I have been taken for a merchant upon the exchange for above these ten years, and sometimes pass for a Jew in the assembly of stock jobbers at Jonathan's. Thus I live in the world rather as a spectator of mankind than as one of the species which is the character I intend to preserve in this paper. The large place which these two little magazines hold in our literature seems most disproportionate to their short span of days. In the short space of four years in which Addison and Steele worked together the light essay was established as one of the most important forms of modern literature, and the literary magazine won its place as the expression of the social life of a nation. Samuel Johnson 1709-1784 The reader of Boswell's Johnson after listening to endless grumblings and watching the clumsy actions of the hero, often finds himself wondering why he should end his reading with a profound respect for this old bear who is the object of Boswell's groveling attention. Here is a man who was certainly not the greatest writer of his age, perhaps not even a great writer at all, 
but who was nevertheless the dictator of English letters, and who still looms across the centuries of a magnificent literature as its most striking and original figure. Here, moreover, is a huge, fat, awkward man, of vulgar manners and appearance, who monopolizes conversation, argues violently, abuses everybody, clubs down opposition. Madam, speaking to his cultivated hostess at table, talk no more nonsense, sir, turning to a distinguished guest. I perceive you are a vile wig. While talking he makes curious animal sounds, sometimes giving a half whistle, sometimes clucking like a hen, and when he has concluded a violent dispute and laid his opponent slow by dogmatism or ridicule, he leans back to blow out his breath like a whale and gulp down numberless cups of hot tea. Yet this curious dictator of an elegant age was a veritable lion, much sought after by society, and around him in his own poor house gathered the foremost artists, scholars, actors, and literary men of London, all honoring the man, loving him, and listening to his dogmatism as the Greeks listened to the voice of their oracle. What is the secret of this astounding spectacle? If the reader turns naturally to Johnson's works for an explanation, he will be disappointed. Reading his verses, we find nothing to delight or inspire us, but rather gloom and pessimism, with a few moral observations in rhyme couplets, but, scarce observed, the knowing and the bold fall in the general massacre of gold, wide-wasting pest, that rages unconfined, and crowds with crimes the records of mankind, for gold his sword the hireling ruffian draws, for gold the hireling judge distorts the laws, wealth heaped on wealth nor truth nor safety buys, the dangers gather as the treasures rise, that is excellent common sense, but it is not poetry, and it is not necessary to hunt through Johnson's bulky volumes for the information, since any moralist can give us offhand the same doctrine, as for his rambler essays, once so successful, though we marvel at the big words, the carefully balanced sentences, the classical allusions, one might as well try to get interested in an old-fashioned, three-hour sermon. We read a few pages listlessly, yawn, and go to bed. Since the man's work fails to account for his leadership and influence, we examine his personality, and here everything is interesting. Because of a few oft-quoted passages from Boswell's biography, Johnson appears to us as an eccentric bear, who amuses us by his growlings and clumsy antics. But there is another Johnson, a brave, patient, kindly, religious soul, who, as Goldsmith said, had nothing of the bear but his skin, a man who battled like a hero against poverty and pain and melancholy and the awful fear of death, and who overcame them manfully. That trouble passed away, so will this, sang the sorrowing deer in the first old Anglo-Saxon lyric, and that expresses the great and suffering spirit of Johnson, who in the face of enormous obstacles never lost faith in God or in himself, though he was a reactionary in politics upholding the arbitrary power of kings and opposing the growing liberty of the people. Yet his political theories, like his manners, were no deeper than his skin, for in all London there was none more kind to the wretched, and none more ready to extend an open hand to every struggling man and woman who crossed his path. When he passed poor homeless Arabs sleeping in the streets he would slip a coin into their hands, in order that they might have a happy awakening, for he himself knew well what it meant to be hungry. Such was Johnson, a mass of genuine manhood, as Carlyle called him, and as such, men loved and honored him. Life of Johnson. Johnson was born in Lichfield, Staffordshire, in 1709. He was the son of a small bookseller, a poor man, 
but intelligent and fond of literature, as booksellers invariably were in the good days when every town had its bookshop. From his childhood Johnson had to struggle against physical deformity and disease and the consequent disinclination to hard work. He prepared for the university, partly in the schools, but largely by omnivorous reading in his father's shop, and when he entered Oxford he had read more classical authors than had most of the graduates. Before finishing his course he had to leave the university on account of his poverty, and at once he began his long struggle as a hack writer to earn his living. At 25 years he married a woman old enough to be his mother, a genuine love match, he called it, and with her dowry of L800 they started a private school together, which was a dismal failure. Then, without money or influential friends, he left his home and wife in Lichfield and tramped to London, accompanied only by David Garrick, afterwards the famous actor, who had been one of his pupils, here, led by old associations. Johnson made himself known to the booksellers, and now and then earned a penny by writing prefaces, reviews, and translations. It was a dog's life, indeed, that he led there with his literary brethren. Many of the writers of the day, who were ridiculed in Pope's heartless dunciant, having no wealthy patrons to support them, lived largely in the streets and taverns, sleeping on an ash heap or under a wharf, like rats, glad of a crust and happy over a single meal which enabled them to work for a while without the reminder of hunger. A few favored ones lived in wretched lodgings in Grub Street, which has since become a synonym for the fortunes of struggling writers. Often, Johnson tells us, he walked the streets all night long, in dreary weather, when it was too cold to sleep, without food or shelter, but he wrote steadily for the booksellers and for the gentleman's magazine and presently he became known in London and received enough work to earn a bare living. The works which occasioned this small success were his poem, London, and his life of the poet Savage, a wretched life, at best, which were perhaps better left without a biographer, but his success was genuine, though small, and presently the booksellers of London are coming to him to ask him to write a dictionary of the English language. It was an enormous work, taking nearly eight years of his time and long before he had finished it he had eaten up the money which he received for his labor. In the leisure intervals of this work he wrote, The Vanity of Human Wishes, and other poems, and finished his classic tragedy of Irene. Led by the great success of The Spectator, Johnson started two magazines, The Rambler 1750-1752 and The Idler 1758-1760. Later The Rambler essays were published in book form and ran rapidly through ten editions, but the financial returns were small, and Johnson spent a large part of his earnings in charity. When his mother died, in 1759, Johnson, although one of the best-known men in London, had no money, and hurriedly finished Rasselas, his only romance, in order, it is said, to pay for his mother's burial. It was not till 1762, when Johnson was 53 years old, that his literary labors were rewarded in the usual way by royalty, and he received from George I.I.I. a yearly pension of £300. Then began a little sunshine in his life. With Joshua Reynolds, the artist, he founded the famous literary club, of which Burke, Kent, Fox, Gibbon, Goldsmith, and indeed all the great literary men and politicians of the time, were members. This is the period of Johnson's famous conversations which were caught in minutest detail by Boswell and given to the world. His idea of conversation, as shown in a hundred places in Boswell, 
is to overcome your adversary at any cost, to knock him down by arguments, or, when these fail, by personal ridicule, to dogmatize on every possible question, pronounce a few oracles, and then desist with the air of victory. Concerning the philosopher Hume's view of death he says, Sir, if he really thinks so, his perceptions are disturbed, he is mad, if he does not think so, he lies, Exopposition. there is nothing more to be said, curiously enough, it is often the palpable blunders of these monologues that now attract us, as if we were enjoying a good joke at the dictator's expense, once a lady asked him, Dr. Johnson, why did you define pastern as the knee of a horse, ignorance, madam, pure ignorance, thundered the great authority, when seventy years of age, Johnson was visited by several booksellers of the city, who were about to bring out a new edition of the English poets, and who wanted Johnson, as the leading literary man of London, to write the prefaces to the several volumes, the result was his lives of the poets, as it is now known, and this is his last literary work, he died in his poor Fleet Street house, in 1784, and was buried among England's honored poets in Westminster Abbey, Johnson's works, a book, says Dr. Johnson, should help us either to enjoy life or to endure it, judged by this standard, one is puzzled what to recommend among Johnson's numerous books, the two things which belong among the things, worthy to be remembered, are his dictionary and his lives of the poets, though both these are valuable, not as literature, but rather as a study of literature, the dictionary, as the first ambitious attempt at an English lexicon, is extremely valuable, notwithstanding the fact that his derivations are often faulty, and that he frequently exercises his humor or prejudice in his curious definitions, in defining oats, for example, as a grain given in England to horses and in Scotland to the people, he indulges his prejudice against the Scotch, whom he never understood, just as, in his definition of pension, he takes occasion to rap the writers who had flattered their patrons since the days of Elizabeth, though he afterwards accepted a comfortable pension for himself. With characteristic honesty he refused to alter his definition in subsequent editions of the dictionary. The lives of the poets are the simplest and most readable of his literary works. For ten years before beginning these biographies he had given himself up to conversation, and the ponderous style of his rambler essays here gives way to a lighter and more natural expression. As criticisms they are often misleading, giving praise to artificial poets, like Cowley and Pope and doing scant justice or abundant injustice to nobler poets like Gray and Milton, and they are not to be compared with those found in Thomas Wharton's History of English Poetry, which was published in the same generation, as biographies. However, they are excellent reading, and we owe to them some of our best-known pictures of the early English poets. Of Johnson's poems the reader will have enough if he glance over The Vanity of Human Wishes, his only story, Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia is a matter of rhetoric rather than of romance, but is interesting still to the reader who wants to hear Johnson's personal views of society, philosophy, and religion. Any one of his essays, like that on reading, or the pernicious effects of reverie, will be enough to acquaint the reader with the Johnson style, which was once much admired and copied by orators, but which happily has been replaced by a more natural way of speaking. Most of his works, it must be confessed, are rather tiresome, it is not to his books, but rather to the picture of the man himself, as given by Boswell, that Johnson owes his great place in our literature, 
Boswell's Life of Johnson, in James Boswell 1740-1795 we have another extraordinary figure, a shallow little Scotch barrister, who trots about like a dog at the heels of his big master, frantic at a caress and groveling at a cuff, and abundantly contented if only he can be near him and record his oracles. All his lifelong Boswell's one ambition seems to have been to shine in the reflected glory of great men, and his chief task to record their sayings and doings. When he came to London, at twenty-two years of age, Johnson, then at the beginning of his great fame, was to this insatiable little glory-seeker like a silver doctor to a hungry trout. He sought an introduction as a man seeks gold, haunted every place where Johnson declaimed, until in Davies's bookstore the supreme opportunity came. This is his record of the great event, I was much agitated says Boswell and recollecting his prejudice against the Scotch, of which I had heard much. I said to Davies, don't tell him where I come from, from Scotland, cried Davies roguishly, Mr. Johnson, said I, I do indeed come from Scotland, but I cannot help it, that, sir, cried Johnson, I find is what a very great many of your countrymen cannot help, this stroke stunned me a good deal, and when we had sat down I felt myself not a little embarrassed, and apprehensive of what might come next, then for several years with a persistence that no rebuffs could abate, and with a thick skin that no amount of ridicule could render sensitive, he follows Johnson, forces his way into the literary club, where he is not welcome, in order to be near his idol, carries him off on a visit to the Hebrides, talks with him on every possible occasion, and, when he is not invited to a feast, waits outside the house or tavern in order to walk home with his master in the thick fog of the early morning and the moment the oracle is out of sight and in bed, Boswell patters home to record in detail all that he has seen and heard. It is to his minute record that we owe our only perfect picture of a great man, all his vanity as well as his greatness, his prejudices, superstitions, and even the details of his personal appearance. There is the gigantic body, the huge face seamed with the scars of disease, the brown coat, the black worsted stockings, the gray wig with the scorched foretop the dirty hands, the nails bitten and pared to the quick, we see the eyes and mouth moving with convulsive twitches, we see the heavy form rolling, we hear it puffing, and then comes the, why, sir, and the, what then, sir, and the, mumber, sir, and the, you don't see your way through the question, sir, to Boswell's record we are indebted also for our knowledge of those famous conversations, those wordy, knock-down battles, which made Johnson famous in his time and which still move us to wonder. Here is a specimen conversation, taken almost at random from a hundred such in Boswell's incomparable biography. After listening to Johnson's prejudice against Scotland, and his dogmatic utterances on Voltaire, Robertson, and twenty others, an unfortunate theorist brings up a recent essay on the possible future life of brutes, quoting some possible authority from the sacred scriptures, Johnson who did not like to hear anything concerning a future state which was not authorized by the regular canons of orthodoxy, discouraged this talk, and being offended at its continuation, he watched an opportunity to give the gentleman a blow of reprehension. So when the poor speculatist, with a serious, metaphysical, pensive face, addressed him, but really, sir, when we see a very sensible dog, we don't know what to think of him, Johnson rolling with joy at the thought which beamed in his eye, turned quickly round and replied, True, sir, and when we see a very foolish fellow, we don't know what to think of him. He then rose up, strided to the fire, 
and stood for some time laughing and exulting. Then the oracle proceeds to talk of scorpions and natural history, denying facts, and demanding proofs which nobody could possibly furnish. He seemed pleased to talk of natural philosophy. That woodcocks, said he, fly over the northern countries is proved, because they have been observed at sea. Swallows certainly sleep all the winter. A number of them conglobulate together by flying round and round, and then all in a heap throw themselves under water and lie in the bed of a river. He told us one of his first essays was a Latin poem upon the glowworm. I am sorry I did not ask where it was to be found. Then follows an astonishing array of subjects and opinions. He catalogues libraries, settles affairs in China, pronounces judgment on men who marry women superior to themselves, flouts popular liberty, hammers swift and mercifully, and adds a few miscellaneous oracles, most of which are about as reliable as his knowledge of the hibernation of swallows. When I called upon Dr. Johnson next morning I found him highly satisfied with his colloquial prowess the preceding evening. Well, said he, we had good talk. Yes, sir, says I, you tossed and gored several persons, far from resenting this curious mental dictatorship. His auditors never seem to weary. They hang upon his words, praise him, flatter him, repeat his judgments all over London the next day, and return in the evening hungry for more. Whenever the conversation begins to flag, Boswell is like a woman with a parrot, or like a man with a dancing bear. He must excite the creature, make him talk or dance for the edification of the company. He sidles obsequiously towards his hero and, with utter irrelevancy, propounds a question of theology, a social theory, a fashion of dress or marriage, a philosophical conundrum. Do you think, sir, that natural affections are born with us? Or, sir, if you were to shut up in a castle and a newborn babe with you, what would you do? Then follow more Johnsonian laws judgments, oracles, the insatiable audience clusters around him and applauds, while Boswell listens, with shining face, and presently goes home to write the wonder down, it is an astonishing spectacle, one does not know whether to laugh or grieve over it, but we know the man, and the audience, almost as well as if we had been there, and that, unconsciously, is the superb art of this matchless biographer. When Johnson died the opportunity came for which Boswell had been watching and waiting some twenty years. He would shine in the world now, not by reflection, but by his own luminosity. He gathered together his endless notes and records, and began to write his biography, but he did not hurry. Several biographies of Johnson appeared, in the four years after his death, without disturbing Boswell's perfect complacency. After seven years' labor he gave the world his life of Johnson. It is an immortal work, praise is superfluous, it must be read to be appreciated. Like the Greek sculptors, the little slave produced a more enduring work than the great master. The man who reads it will know Johnson as he knows no other man who dwells across the border, and he will lack sensitiveness. Indeed, if he lay down the work without a greater love and appreciation of all good literature, later Augustine writers, with Johnson, who succeeded Dryden and Pope in the chief place of English letters, the classic movement had largely spent its force, and the latter half of the 18th century gives us an imposing array of writers who differ so widely that it is almost impossible to classify them. In general, three schools of writers are noticeable. First, the classicists, who, under Johnson's lead, insisted upon elegance and regularity of style. Second, the romantic poets, like Collins, Gray, Thompson, and Burns 
who revolted from Pope's artificial couplets and wrote of nature and the human heart, Thurg, the early novelists, like Defoe and Fielding, who introduced a new type of literature. The romantic poets and the novelists are reserved for special chapters, and of the other writers Berkeley and Hume in philosophy, Robertson, Hume, and Gibbon in history, Chesterfield and Lady Montague in letter writing, Adam Smith in economics, Pitt, Burke, Fox, and a score of lesser writers in politics we select only two, Burke and Gibbon, whose works are most typical of the Augustan, i.e. the elegant, classic style of prose writing. Edmund Burke 1729-1797 to read all of Burke's collected works, and so to understand him thoroughly, is something of a task. Few are equal to it. On the other hand, to read selections here and there, as most of us do, is to get a wrong idea of the man and to join either in fulsome praise of his brilliant oratory, or in honest confession that his periods are ponderous and his ideas often buried under Johnsonian verbiage. Such are the contrasts to be found on successive pages of Burke's twelve volumes, which cover the enormous range of the political and economic thought of the age, and which mingle fact and fancy, philosophy, statistics, and brilliant flights of the imagination, to a degree never before seen in English literature, for Burke belongs in spirit to the new romantic school, while in style he is a model for the formal classicists. We can only glance at the life of this marvelous Irishman and then consider his place in our literature, life. Burke was born in Dublin, the son of an Irish barrister, in 1729. After his university course in Trinity College he came to London to study law, but soon gave up the idea to follow literature, which in turn led him to politics. He had the soul, the imagination of a poet, and the law was only a clog to his progress. His two first works of indication of natural society and the origin of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful, brought him political as well as literary recognition, and several small offices were in turn given to him. When 36 years old he was elected to Parliament as member from Windhofer, and for the next 30 years he was the foremost figure in the House of Commons and the most eloquent orator which that body has ever known, pure and incorruptible in his politics as in his personal life. No more learned or devoted servant of the Commonwealth ever pleaded for justice and human liberty. He was at the summit of his influence at the time when the colonies were struggling for independence, and the fact that he championed their cause in one of his greatest speeches, on conciliation with America, gives him an added interest in the eyes of American readers. His championship of America is all the more remarkable from the fact that, in other matters, Burke was far from liberal. He set himself squarely against the teachings of the Romantic writers, who were enthusiastic over the French Revolution, he denounced the principles of the revolutionists, broke with the liberal Whig party to join the Tories, and was largely instrumental in bringing on the terrible war with France, which resulted in the downfall of Napoleon. It is good to remember that, in all the strife and bitterness of party politics, Burke held steadily to the noblest personal ideals of truth and honesty and that in all his work, whether opposing the slave trade, or pleading for justice for America, or protecting the poor natives of India from the greed of corporations, or setting himself against the popular sympathy for France in her desperate struggle, he aimed solely at the welfare of humanity. When he retired on a pension in 1794, he had won, and he deserved, the gratitude and affection of the whole nation. Works. There are three distinctly marked periods in Burke's career, 
and these correspond closely to the years in which he was busied with the affairs of America, India, and France successively. The first period was one of prophecy. He had studied the history and temper of the American colonies, and he warned England of the disaster which must follow her persistence in ignoring the American demands, and especially the American spirit. His great speeches, on American taxation and on conciliation with America, were delivered in 1774 and 1775, preceding the Declaration of Independence. In this period Burke's labor seemed all in vain, he lost his cause, and England her greatest colony. The second period is one of denunciation rather than of prophecy. England had won India, but when Burke studied the methods of her victory and understood the soulless way in which millions of poor natives were made to serve the interests of an English monopoly, his soul rose in revolt, and again he was the champion of an oppressed people. His two greatest speeches of this period are, the Nabob of Orcott's debts and his tremendous impeachment of war in Hastings. Again he apparently lost his cause though he was still fighting on the side of right. Hastings was acquitted, and the spoliation of India went on, but the seeds of reform were sown, and grew and bore fruit long after Burke's labors were ended. The third period island curiously enough, one of reaction, whether because the horrors of the French Revolution had frightened him with the danger of popular liberty, or because his own advance in office and power had made him side unconsciously with the upper classes, is unknown. That he was as sincere and noble now as in all his previous life is not questioned. He broke with the liberal Whigs and joined forces with the reactionary Tories. He opposed the romantic writers, who were on fire with enthusiasm over the French Revolution, and thundered against the dangers which the revolutionary spirit must breed, forgetting that it was a revolution which had made modern England possible. Here, where we must judge him to have been mistaken in his cause, he succeeded for the first time. It was due largely to Burke's influence that the growing sympathy for the French people was checked in England, and war was declared, which ended in the frightful victories of Trafalgar and Waterloo. Burke's best-known work of this period is his reflections on the French Revolution, which he polished and revised again essay on and again before it was finally printed. This ambitious literary essay, though it met with remarkable success, is a disappointment to the reader, though of Celtic blood. Burke did not understand the French, or the principles for which the common people were fighting in their own way, and his denunciations and apostrophes to France suggest a preacher without humor, hammering away at sinners who are not present in his congregation. The essay has few illuminating ideas, but a great deal of Johnsonian rhetoric, which make its periods tiresome, notwithstanding our admiration for the brilliancy of its author. More significant is one of Burke's first essays. A philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful, which is sometimes read in order to show the contrast in style with Addison's spectator essays on the pleasures of the imagination, Burke's best-known speeches, on conciliation with America, American taxation, and the impeachment of war in Hastings, are still much studied in our schools as models of English prose, and this fact tends to give them an exaggerated literary importance, viewed purely as literature. They have faults enough, and the first of these, so characteristic of the classic age, is that they abound in fine rhetoric but lack simplicity. In a strict sense, these eloquent speeches are not literature, to delight the reader and to suggest ideas, but studies in rhetoric and in mental concentration. All this, however, is on the surface. 
A careful study of any of these three famous speeches reveals certain admirable qualities which account for the important place they are given in the study of English. First, as showing the stateliness and the rhetorical power of